I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark McCourt. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast, brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. And this is episode 55, Mark LaCour. I'm not going to sing any Sammy Hagar because we try to forget about that version of Van Halen, right? <laughs> How are you doing this morning, brother? Doing good. If uh, if we sound a little funny, we uh, we're in Houston and it's tree pollen season, <laughs> which means <laughs> both of us have a little bit of allergy stuff going on. But other than that, I'm doing good. Yeah, it's 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 that time of year, that time of my life where I'm feeling a little creative. I want to get out of the box a little bit, and so I went and did improv for the first time last Saturday, Mark. How'd that go? <laughs> it went well. I didn't have any clue what I was doing because it was a quote-unquote improv jam where it's these improv people from all over the city come together at the Station Theater and it's on Saturdays and so forth. But I walked in a little late. I didn't know how it worked or anything like that. We were doing a little intro game, and <laughs> during the intro game, one of the things was there was a snake involved, and I, I acted like I picked it up and killed it. Whilst performing my little act, I completely shredded the inseam of my jeans and got to perform like that the rest of the time. You ripped your pants in front of a whole crowd of people you didn't know? As soon as I met them. <laughs> as I walked in the door, hey, what's going on? Yeah, I'm new. And I, I'm just trying to keep up because I've never been in, uh, and these guys are all veterans and I have no clue what I'm doing. And that was the first thing that happened. So, nice way to introduce yourself. You know, it's funny you uh, you say that. I, there's still people at Chevron that talk about the time about 17 years ago that I was doing a presentation, a bunch of executives out in San Ramon, their corporate headquarters, and my pants were unzipped. But I didn't know my pants were unzipped. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day... You gave I, a presentation to Chevron with your fly down? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, and to this day, some of those people that are still there still tease me about that. So, yeah, I, I know that feeling. Close the deal, though, baby, right? We actually did close the deal, even with my, my fly unzipped. <laughs> uh, we would speculate on if that helped. Um, no, man, not. <laughs> right? All right, we've got a lot of stories to get into this morning, and so why don't we just go ahead and kick things off with Platts. Rosneft signs deal to increase Indian involvement in East Siberian oil gas projects. Always... Always interesting to see what Russia's up to. What are they up to in this case? Yeah, so what Russia's doing is basically looking for other markets to sell their oil and gas to. In India, uh, we've talked about this before, India's economy is, is growing like crazy. Uh, they will pass up China both in uh, consumption of crude oil, natural gas, and population in the near future, which is crazy to think about. Um, but this is just um, a, a way for Russia to find another market for their, their crude oil and gas. And then, quite honestly, it's good for the Indian people. It's... um. People that live in Europe or in the U.S. don't understand how most of the world's power is delivered. It's basically delivered unreliably. So even in some of the major cities in India, there's rolling blackouts that you can't predict because they there's literally not enough electricity to supply the entire demand. So by uh, Russia opening up this market, working with India, uh, they'll be able to increase the electrical output and hopefully get to the point where they have you know reliable power for their people. Is there any geopolitics involved? Because I see China might be investing in this. Oh, you know, there's a ton of geopolitics involved in this, right? Everything from um, Russia's losing market share because of the uh, attacks by uh, OPEC um, to uh, Russia can't produce some of their um, 
more advanced fields because of the sanctions by the U.S. and Europe, um, the Russia economy crashing in recession. Um, you know, yeah, there, there, there's a bunch of geopolitics here, but the the basic thing that's going on here is Russia's trying to uh, open up a new market to sell uh, their oil and gas. In some of the background on it, apparently they divested some some interest in an Indian company to get some concessions. Do you know the background there? Yeah, it's a it's so what's happening there is that um, in order to get agreement for this deal, uh, Russia the um, um, Rosnet, which is the Russian company that we're talking about here, uh, was asked to back out of some joint ventures they had in some other Indian companies. And, and the, the Indian government, that's the right thing for them to do. What they're trying to do is make sure that Rosnet or any other large oil and gas company doesn't have an exclusive monopolized market in their country. It just reminded me, I we talked about Motiva on the last This Week in Oil, I'm sorry, um, Oil and Gas Careers podcast. And I didn't throw it, I'll have to dig it up and put it in the extras. But you and I were talking about the interesting way that it's a Shell slash uh, Saudi Aramco. Yeah. They're splitting up. There's Motiva splitting that up? Yeah. Oh, you know something I don't know. They're going, they're going their separate ways. Yeah. Interesting. It'd be interesting to figure out why they're doing that. That's been a JV for forever. 25 years or something you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so sorry, sorry. I, I totally forgot to. I'll dig it up and and throw it in the show notes, and maybe we can have a follow up conversation on that one. All right, let's move over to Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, I should say, capital intensive industry seeking foreign partners. Yeah. So this is touching on some of the stuff we just talked about that's going on in India. So uh, Pakistan also, like India, um, does not have enough power for its people. Right, and they have these huge rolling blackouts all over the country, very unreliable. Um, and here's a, a good article by um, uh, World Folio talking about how downstream in Pakistan is growing because of these low crude prices and the fact the government needs to generate more um, 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 energy for its people. And so what they're doing is they're doing a really, really good job of looking for foreign partners that have capital, basically cash that can finance these projects. But they're being very careful not to let anybody develop a monopoly on this. Um, and so it's um, it's this is this is good work by the Pakistanian government. And it's also good work uh, for the industry as a whole. Right. So anytime you start building big infrastructure, it's a lot of jobs being created. Um, so it's, um, you know, Pakistan's downstream is growing and they're they're growing it the right way. This is, I don't want to get too political, but I recently heard a conversation between someone who what I considered pretty far left leaning and far right leaning. And both of them agreed that Pakistan was the number one enemy of America. Is there anything to be said about that when we're reading this article? No, and and you know, not to go down the political route. It's, I would, uh, when I think of all the in- enemies the U.S. has, that are actually worthwhile enemies. Uh, Pakistan doesn't even top my top ten list. All right, I don't want to go too far down that road. Just tell us a, b- a bit more because there's a lot of numbers in this article here. Yeah, so they're 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 talking about the the amount of employment that the downstream section in Pakistan uh, occupies, how much that's going to grow. They're talking about the productions of of the Pakistani state oil company um, is, you know, they're up to 40,000 barrels a day for one of the refineries, which is uh, drops compared to what (laughs) a U.S. refinery can put out. Um, You know, it's um, 
they're they're signing some deals to get some LNG plants and some regasification plants in place. Um, all of this is geared toward being able to produce more energy for the country. And is it mainly driven by downstream investment? Because they're talking a lot about that in this article. It, yeah, so it's it, you have to read this article in its entirety. It's they they keep using the word downstream. The the true goal for this is to actually produce more electricity. Right, you produce more electricity cleanly, and one of the best fuels for that is natural gas. And whether that's gas that you produce yourself or whether that's LNG that you import, um, but those facilities are expensive, and so they are uh, partnering with uh, other big companies that have the cash to help finance these projects. Yeah, the total they talk about this uh, the new complex that they're bringing online is the Bico Group's second facility and brings the Pakistani's company's total refining capacity to 155,000 barrels per day. Is that a lot? Or no. a little? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not compared to the US refineries. They could do 155,000 barrels a minute. Um yeah, for a country as small as Pakistan, you know, that's and for a country that just a few years ago had almost no refining capacity imported everything. That's good. I mean, they're they're going down the right path. Yeah, so that economic prosperity only drives good things for that country. And we've all, we've talked before about the benefits of bringing Western capitalism further east. So let's move over to Uganda. We shall minimize cost and maximize production. Total boss. Yeah, so this is um, one of the upper managements at uh, Total, which is uh, you know one of the super majors out there. And I'm not going to try to pronounce his name, <laughs> but he's talking about um, his 20 years, uh, basically his 20 years of success in Total and how Total has taken a long-term um, outlook on everything they do, including the work they're doing in Uganda and other parts of Africa. Um, they have a bunch of joint ventures out there. Um, they have um, 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 long-term leases. Um, they're looking at, uh, you know, they're looking at investing in Africa over a 25-year period. I mean, you know, Total, Total is a super major. They do things right. Um, and they're also working on um, uh, financing and help to try to clean up some some of the corruption out there. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool is that they just recently signed an uh, uh, MOU with three JV partners, which basically means there's going to be four. What's sorry, an MOU? Sorry. An MOU is a contractual term. Um, it's Memorandum of Understanding, I think is what it stands for. But but it's it's. It's basically a contract saying that you're an agreement that you're going to sign a contract later on. <laughs> it's like the pre-contract contract. Um, but what's interesting is they they signed with other three other partners, which means there's four separate companies working uh, to build these um, these pipelines in, in Uganda. So this is this is Total showing how when you're big and you know what you're doing and you have a long-term view of of the market, this is how you do business. Talk about the work that they're doing in the Ivory Coast. Uh, so the Ivory Coast, they're doing a bunch of uh, deep water, uh, ultra deep water. And it's going to be interesting to see um, if that stuff continues. I was actually talking to somebody just a day or two ago that's um, a portfolio manager for, for one of the uh, deep water operators. And I never thought about this, uh, but one of the things that's going on in deep water, it's been hot lately, is something called HPHT, high pressure, high temperature. And it's basically super cool, cutting edge technology to be able to uh, drill in conditions that are, are almost, you would think, impossible to drill in and do it safely. And that whole HPHT um, investment in research and development my companies is probably going to slide and maybe even disappear because we are, we're living in a hydrocarbon abundant world right now. We have a surplus. That's why the price of crude is so low. And so why would you invest money in getting that expensive um, you know, HPHT deep water oil out of the ground? So there's, there's a side effect that I didn't think of, and that is basically 
that the money that the oil and gas companies are putting into research and development may stop for the expensive oils in deep water like the Ivory Coast. Interesting to me, we've talked before about the proliferation of the intelligence in how to extract the most oil out of the ground being very specialized here in America. And they talk about how they are bringing new technologies to those oil fields in Africa. One example being 3D cableless seismic technology was the first time they'd ever used it, as well as horizontal drilling. So it's good to see the people around the world learning these things so that they can take advantage of this abundance you've been talking about since the since the forecast show. <laughs> yeah, it's um <clears throat> this is a part of the country that that their population really will benefit from the prosperity from the oil and gas industry. All right, let's keep it moving over here and I say keep it moving because someone wants to keep multinationals out of the oil retail business. What's this about? Yeah, so this is this kind of is kind of neat. This is uh, a guy, uh, Dr. Isaac Asmo Antoine. Uh, he's a social worker and economics expert um, out in Ghana, in Africa. And so what he's saying, and and I, I can see this concern. What he's saying is that the large multinationals, so so you know the super majors, do not need to have a monopoly on the downstream side of business in Ghana. And interesting enough, the other uh, African nations around there are putting laws in place to try to keep that from happening. And it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. Interesting in Ghana is they're actually putting laws in place to make it easier for that to happen. So basically, <clears throat> you pick somebody like, a, like well, we're talking about Total. So you pick somebody like Total. In Ghana, they actually can produce the oil, ship it, refine it, and sell those refined products. And the government is propping that up, which then gives Total, if you think about it, and by the way, folks, Total is not doing this. I'm just using them as an example. That gives Total um, a, a piece of the market that is basically locked down like a monopoly. So then they can use that to play the pricing game to maximize their profits. That's not something you want to let a, let a company do inside a country. So uh, this guy is talking about how the, uh, Ghana's political situation needs to change so that you can't have that type of monopoly, which also encourages you know, local businesses, local entrepreneurs, especially in the downstream section, to flourish. And that would be more free market. So I don't, I don't know the backstory of this, um, but if, you know, if, if everything in this article is correct, I, I think that the Ghana government probably needs to look at a way to make sure that uh, large companies with a lot of political and financial leverage uh, can't lock down a monopoly on downstream in their country. It's just really interesting to continue to listen and follow the way that these things develop around the world. But let's bring things back to America, where we have an update from J.D. Spurra on the, and the, this is the, we keep raving, I at least keep raving about this particular site, all lawyers explaining things in plain language for us. Recent bankruptcy cases may have a significant impact on the midstream oil and natural gas pipeline industry. This is, of course, a follow-up to the, the story from Oil & Gas Investor a week or two ago we talked about. So what sort of details do they get into here that we haven't already covered? Yeah, so what's happened since the last time we talked about this, and if you didn't hear the other show, basically um, the way pipeline companies make money is they go out and see where there's a need for transport. They find local producers, and they sign long-term contracts. And once they have those contracts, then they know they have the money. Then they build the pipeline. So it's really hard not to make money in that industry. And part of what they do to protect themselves is in the contracts, even if the country, the country, even if the company goes bankrupt, 
they are entitled to their full and rightful share. So it protects them. So what's happened is we've had two separate um, operators go to court and, and say, look, this is not fair that I'm having to meet these financial requirements while we're getting ready to go out of business. And of those two companies that did it, one judge has actually sided with them. And that was the, um, the bankruptcy debtor on Sabine Oil and Gas. Um, the other one, the judge hasn't made a ruling yet. But if this sets a precedence, it's going to fundamentally change the financial business model of the midstream companies. And the thing that I'm, you know, after I've talked about this so much and I've thought this through, the other thing, and I'm curious to see what's going to happen. So if you go through bankruptcy, like Chapter 11 bankruptcy, you're basically asking the courts to allow you to move some stuff around and get out some under debt so you can keep your company intact, so you can at least keep some people employed and eventually maybe pay all that money back, which is a good thing, right? But if you let these companies, these operators get out from their pipeline contracts, that oil and gas that they're producing still has to be brought to market for the operator to make money. The only way to bring it to market is in that pipeline that that company built. So to me, I, when I'm looking at this, uh, you know, I, I almost look at it like a, a bluff game, right? So is, is the operator trying to bluff the pipeline operator and to get him to cut his rates or his terms by going to the courts and doing this? knowing that even if the courts say yes, they still have to pay the pipeline guy to move their stuff to market or they will go out of business. So this is a, a story that we really need to stay on top of. It's, 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 this could fundamentally change the, the, the midstream industry in the U.S. I've said time and, and again, and I think most listeners would agree, I'm no expert, especially around law and these types of things. The first thing that comes to mind as I hear you talking, though, is moral hazard. Just unfettered moral hazard if if it does set a precedent where people can just walk away from contracts like that what does that do to the rest of the industry yeah so it won't go where they can just walk away from contracts they'll they'll what what will happen is there'll be rules set around this but this is good this is good trigger i mean this is good trigger all kinds of chaos in the pipeline industry you have all these pipelines that are being built right now while we're talking that are funded by investors, and these investors have confidence they'll get the money back because they have these long-term contracts signed. Well, if I'm an investor, and all of a sudden this sets precedent, and I know that those contracts may not be worthwhile or may not you know, be able to um, be, be enforced, I don't want to invest in a pipeline anymore. It's too big a risk. Well, without the, the capital to build the pipelines, the pipelines can't be built. So, I mean, this literally could, could – totally, and, and if you keep following down that road, that means that the pipeline companies are going to have to come up with another financial model – um, which is going to be f of just a big fundamental change in the way they do business. What if a pipeline company only would build a pipeline when the people that live in that area are willing to pay a tax? I, I mean, you know, this, this, and, and it's not the pipeline company's fault. They have to have money to build a pipeline. A pipeline's expensive to build. So uh, we'll stay on top of this and see where this goes. I, I, it's hard for me to make a judgment call on this because I respect the fact of an independent operator, especially a small one, um, having trouble in this low crude price market, wanting to keep the doors open, keeping its people employed, and, and just trying to get some relief. But I also see the pipeline company side too. Like, dude, you made a you made an agreement. You signed a contract. We explained this to you. I'm sorry that the price of oil is down, but you know this affects our business and our ability to keep our people working. So let's just follow this and see where it ends up. It, it feels like a real Pandora's box, so we will continue to follow it. Moving over to, to more arguments, I guess you could say, around regulation or, or things that happen in courts, however we want to talk about it. Virginia, ground zero in drilling debate to learn its fate soon. Yeah, this article must be just a little bit old. Um, 
so the fate's already sealed. So what happens, the Obama administration wanted to um, uh, allow offshore drilling on the East Coast, basically. Um, so um, there's a bunch of pushback, and there's a bunch of people that are looking forward to it because it wants to create jobs, prosperity, blah, blah, blah. And just yesterday, the administration um, pulled that and said they are, they're not looking to, for uh, offshore drilling on the East Coast. So um, it, it's it's not going to happen in this um, in in this political environment. We'll see what the next political environment is. Honestly, the people on the East Coast that are against this, they're silly. <laughs> come to come to come to Houston. Go to Lafayette, Louisiana. Even this low crude price market. Look at the money that's pumped in those local economies because of the offshore uh, business in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it's, it's, you know, yeah, everybody thinks of Maconda. Do you know how many wells have been drilled? You know, it's at 0.00001% risk. You have way more risk in agriculture, um, cause environmental, um, impacts in this country than, than oil and gas drilling. So, um, it, the, the debate doesn't matter anymore. The, the president administration has pulled its request to open offshore drill on the East coast. We'll see where it goes. Um, I'm hoping that in the next political environment, uh, people will respond favorably to this, and we can uh, go out there because there's a lot of reserves on the East Coast, and you know those states and those local economies would benefit greatly if they open that up. Well, being being from Michigan as I am, the the first thing I think of is, you know, obviously jobs are a big deal, but come on, guys, you live through the winter. How can you be <laughs> against this? How do you heat your homes? Or do you chop down the wood yourselves? Yeah, <laughs> because, good point. Because I I grew up through thirty years of Michigan winters, which aren't all that different from East Coast winters, and you are you are. I think you've used the analogy before. It's wearing a fur coat to an anti you know fur rally or something like that. It's just like the the consistency in the position there is none. There, it, it, this is the only industry I know where the people that don't like this industry fully support us financially. <laughs> right, right. Thanks for your support. <laughs> Thank you for your support, anti-oil and gas people. I'm putting this in here because of the fact that it's sort of an elephant in the room that we haven't talked about in terms of earthquakes in Oklahoma. So boom times for fracking toxic waste comes to a shaky end. Yeah, this is bull. <laughs> so let me tell you the truth about earthquakes. Are earthquakes um, on the rise in the U.S. or in North America? Yes, absolutely. You can look at the seismic data that proves it. Are earthquakes on the rise in Oklahoma where they do fracking? Yes. Are earthquakes on the rise in Arkansas where they do no fracking? Yes. Is the percent of increase in earthquakes the same between Oklahoma and Arkansas? Yes. <laughs> so there's an increase in seismic activity in North America, but it's not due to fracking. You know, it has nothing to do at all with fracking. And no matter what you read, no matter what you see out there, um, it, it, they're not connected. There is an increase in seismic activity, but it's it's has, it's it's the same percent increase in states that don't have fracking. So this is an article about how in Oklahoma, one of the ways they dispose of frack water is they do deep deep well injection, which sounds scary. But the U.S. has been doing that with toxic stuff for over 100 years. If you go deep enough and you get into the the, the right layers of rock, and it's fine. So. This operator, when everybody else was drilling wells, he figured out the smart thing for him to do is to, to uh, drill a wastewater well so that he could um, charge producers for their wastewater to dispose of it. Um, and so his business, quite frankly, is was booming when the oil was booming. Now, because of the slowdown in drilling, it's lit, he's getting less uh, disposal water to, to deal with, and he has to charge less. And then there's been a bunch of regulations um, regulate deep water disposal wells, which has hurt his business. So basically he's getting ready to go uh, upside down. He went from boom to bust. 
what is the long term effect of of because even among people who aren't informed that I would typically kind of just discount, they seem to have become pretty educated on disposal wells. Is there some other technology that's going to come around that's yeah, going to have to replace this? Yeah, it's, disposal wells are old technology. They're already on the way out for, for a bunch of reasons. One is actually efficiency. It's actually, it makes more financial sense to put the right stuff in place to clean up that water and reuse it. And what's happening is in all the frack fields, they're building the infrastructure. So what will happen is three or four or six operators will get together. They'll put in the money. They'll they'll build the wastewater treatment facilities. They'll build the pipelines to move that water around. And they share in the, the cost, but they also share in the benefit. And that water is so clean when it comes out that by law, you can use it to water organic crops. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the technology is there. It's being implemented now. You'll, you'll see a wastewater injection go away because it's just not financially sound. And you have a contact or two in that realm, don't you? I have a couple of contacts. So shout out to Thomas um, with uh, the new Frackers project. He's actually started a nonprofit to help spread that technology. He's not trying to make money. He's trying to spread that technology to help the oil and gas industry and the environment. How cool is that? Yeah, it's it's great stuff and shows that we'll always come up with a greater technology and and I don't know. You we say fix it, problems. We fix problems. Industry, yeah. We fix problems. Yeah, we fix problems. You say it all the time. The, the engineers in this industry, it, it's NASA... <laughs> yeah, I know you can put people, you know, in 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 you know in space for a year, but we we can drill at you know however many thousand feet deep at whatever temperature, yeah, I, and I not have things time, melt. A subsea engineer in oil and gas makes a NASA engineer look like a Lego builder. <laughs> All right. So speaking of the intelligence, we have some wisdom coming here: unconventional wisdom, building a conventional oil company in an era of shale. <laughs> this is so cool. This is Scott Cohen, who's a founder of Iroquois Capital. Um, so Scott's doing something. Basically, Scott's out there looking for contrarian opportunities. And you may say, what the hell is a contrarian opportunity? That's an investment scenario where when everybody else zigs, you zag. So in his case, while everybody's worried about money and they're selling off assets, he goes, I'll just buy them for pennies on the dollar. We've talked about this before. So he's he's built a whole company called uh, Petro River Oil Corporation, and that's doing nothing but going out there buying assets, not just in the shell plays, all over the world right now, because he knows that it's going to come back. So, um, I mean, they've bought stuff in California. They bought stuff in um, um, Ireland and Denmark in, um, you know, the shell plays. And this guy's just super smart. He knows the market's going to come back. He knows right now he gets stuff for pennies on the dollar. And he's out there buying stuff left and right. This is cool. What is he? So is he just buying acreage and holding it until it happens? Is he doing no, any drilling? No, he's building a whole company. And guess what? Their break-even point is $20 a barrel. He's building a whole company where at $20 a barrel, they don't lose money. Wow. So Yeah, isn't that cool? In 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 they're all conventional plays that he's that he's No, no, no. He's involved in everything. They're 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 um there is is he's involved in a lot of shale. Shale, I'm sorry, people. And he's involved in a lot of shale in other countries that have even tried to tap into it yet, knowing that he can take his operators to Ireland, tap in that shale and get oil and gas out of the ground for dirt cheap. Well, we saw a lot of that happening at Nate. People there buying things for penny on the pennies on the dollar. I wonder if he was he was there on the show floor. Uh, I bet one of his people were there. I bet <laughs> probably. All right, we talked about offshore a little bit earlier. Let's 
let's let's sneak in our seeking alpha story of the week because what's a show of ours without a seeking alpha story? Offshore drilling, the rally is fading. Yeah, this is uh, Vladimir Zernov. Um, and I have to agree with this article. I actually, if you go back to, I think, May of 2013, I did an email sh- pod, um, email video short or answering emails. And somebody asked me the same question, what do I think is going to happen offshore? And I think especially uh, deep water and ultra deep water, that market's going to fade um, and stay faded for a very long time. Um, the shelf plays in the conventional uh, reservoirs are, are, will still, are still fine. Now, I say all that, <clears throat> I'm saying that from a growth point of view, right? Do I think there's going to be more deep water and ultra deep water projects scoped out and completed in the next uh, 10 years? No. Now, the ones that are in play now, they will they will bring those thing, um, those projects online. And there are some that are planned that make fiscal sense. But as a whole, I think you're going to see a decline in new projects in deep water and ultra deep water. Is that all driven by the price? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's at, you know, even at $60 a barrel, um, which is what we think is going to get back to, a lot of these expensive deep water ultra deep projects are upside down. They lose money. The only company I know that that, and I know what their number is. The only company I know that builds their financial model to even in deep water to account for this low crew price is Exxon. So Exxon just gonna keep on chugging ahead. But if you know if 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 you're Transocean or uh, Noble Drilling, any of these drilling contractors that have these drill ship fleets, you need to readjust your portfolio because your very expensive, high horsepower, new ultra deep water rigs are are not going to be contracted up for years like they were in the past. What would that look like? Um, so you would probably invest in more uh, reef, uh, shallow water stuff, so more jackups, um, more spars, that sort of stuff. Um, FPSOs are an interesting twist on things. Uh, Brazil invested heavy in FPSOs, and their and their, and their oil and gas industries crashed because of corruptions, which then tells me you have a bunch of FPSOs on the market for a very low day rate. Um, so it's it's just a matter of looking at your if you're a drilling contractor, looking at your fleet, trying to anticipate where the demands could be, and to try to tailor your fleet for that demand before the demand hits there. I just realized that Christian, who won our Red Wing offshore bag a couple weeks ago, he was talking about, because he works for Pacific Exploration, I can't remember the, the rest of the, the company, but what they do is they're, they're working on some LNG project, projects, um, Canada and some other places, and they go and, and buy these tankers essentially that for dirt cheap so that they can basically i don't know what remanufacture them uh, refabricate them to be able to hold lng and then just run pipelines out to them offshore so that might be something although i sound very uneducated about it because you <laughs> yeah know, so that, it was that the whole best I world could do. has been around for a while right risers um, manifolds pipe system all subsea type of stuff loading unloading processing offshore and in, in, in vessels um, that that happens in oil as well as lng yeah so apologies to christian for the horrible <laughs> horrible um, summary that i just gave but i was just trying to come up with another w- way because if this is really headed in this direction, like you said, people are going to need to have to pivot. Yeah. So w- what's going to happen is companies are going to end up with a bunch of rigs that aren't being utilized. And it's expensive to stack those rigs. It's basically storing them. And when you stack them, um, it takes a couple years if they need to go back to market before you can get them back in the market. And by then, they're antiquated. 
So it's um, for the drilling contractors, you know, their day rates could be low for a while for, 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 you know, the next three, four, five, six years. Um, they're going to have surplus rigs on the market. So the, the smart companies are going to figure this out and pivot sooner than later. Uh, we're not going to f- see uh, any any reality TV shows where they they auction off the uh, <laughs> you know talking that about would actually make a good reality TV show, but no, I don't think we'll see any. <laughs> what what is what are they the storage the, the storage and the, everybody stands there and bids before it opens. Anyway, moving on. Does this shale oil legends coming out of retirement signal the bottom of the oil market? Who are we talking about? We are talking about Mark Papa. He is retired from EOG Resources. He is he is one of the key people that that use fracking to make money. He is one of the first people to realize that we're going to have cheap natural gas forever. And so he uh, he took EOG Resources down a liquids route, which was smart. I mean, just genius in its time. Because at that time when he did that, everybody thought gas was the way to go, and everybody's drilling gas wells. He started a new company. It's called Silver Run Acquisition Corporation. He has $450 million in cash. And you know what he's doing? He's buying oil and gas assets. Sound familiar? <laughs> so that's what it's all about right now. Companies that didn't get over leveraged and people that are visionaries that can see things further than what's in front of them in terms of prices. And the t- fact that he's been through downturns before. He knows this is this is no different than when the housing crisis happened. My wife had a conniption fit. I took a large part of our part of our savings and I tapped into our home line of credit and I bought blue chip stock, you know, GE. Uh, Walmart, whatever. And my wife was like, are you crazy? The economy's crashing. You spent all our savings on, on, on stock. And I go, wait, watch and see what happens. And about 18 months later, I sold it and I made a huge profit. Now, I'm not super smart. I'm not an investor. I've just been through enough market downturns to know that it always comes back. That's what's going on here. Um, Mark Papa knows he's been through so many downturns. He knows it's coming back. And so he, he um, exited from EOG. Round up a little bit of cash from his buddies, about $450 million of cash, start another company, start acquiring assets. And it gave you an opportunity to talk about the one time you were right over your wife, right? <laughs> well, the funny thing now, yeah, she's almost always right. The funny thing now is every time the our economy takes a little bit of a nosedive, my wife wants to jump into it. I go, no, no, no. <laughs> you got to wait till it's like bad. That's the only time it's safe to do that. All right, so there's a lot of talk about Lynn Energy out there because they might be filing bankruptcy. Is this blueprint from the past Lynn Energy LLC's only hope for survival? Yeah, so what they're talking about is Lynn Energy is in a a, a, a predicament, right? They have a lot of debt, and, and they can't get enough credit to help them finance that the carry load of that debt. And so what they're looking at doing is forming a um, um, MLP, Master Limited Partnership, to get out from under that deck and get some tax benefits and then later probably roll that back into a C-Corp. That's exactly what uh, Apache did in the 1980s. The only reason Apache is still around, they did that exact move. So uh, the conditions are very similar. The financial uh, situation that Lynn Energy in is is very similar to where Apache was in the 1980s. you know, it's um, it it the good thing is if they do that, it it keeps the company from going bankrupt, keeps Lynn Energy from going bankrupt. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. But this is a good article. Um, and and I by uh, in a what is this article? MySanAntonio.com. Yeah, it's a good article. And I you know I would have to agree with the author of this article, Matthew uh, Diallo. I I would suspect that Lynn Energy goes down that same route that Apache did in 1980. How close are they to the brink before they have to make a decision like this? 
Um, they were able to reduce their outstanding debt by $1.8 billion, but they still have $9 billion, that's with a B, of debt to restructure. So um, just the carry load on that debt has to be ridiculous, several million dollars a day. Um, so I would think they're going to have to pull the trigger on it this quarter. Doesn't right. mean it'll be completed this quarter, but I mean they have to make this decision this quarter. Yeah, they have to get off the fence one way or the other. All right, uh, we've got one more story here, and we've touched on upstream, downstream, every every other way in other countries. But here we go with Pennsylvania ethane cracker still a play. Yeah, if you're a regular listener to the show, I'm not sure I even need to say anything at this point. <laughs> so this is a shell as a, as in rural Dutch shell has an ethylene cracker in the Appalachians in, in, in Pennsylvania. And even with all of Shell's restructuring and selling off of assets and um, you know doing everything they can, they're not pulling a plug on this one because it's a moneymaker for them. Um, it's, um, so the ethylene cracker is still going up. They're, still, they're not pulling any budgets. They're still going to hit their, their um, key deliverable dates. It's going to still hire the same number of people. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and it's, 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 and there's a bunch of reasons for this. And I was talking to somebody just yesterday about this. The thing that's so interesting about petrochemicals in the U.S. is we have, we have the largest, most robust, most efficient refineries in the world. We have the cheapest feedstock literally in our backyard with no shortage. And we have the cheapest transportation cost. And the whole world, the developing nation, has an appetite for our downstream products, for our petrochemicals, fertilizers, plastics, and all that. And here's another example of how even though in this low crude price market downstreams on fire well and i guess this can put things in perspective in terms of my question about pakistan earlier in the in the show when i asked it was a hundred thousand hundred and fifty thousand and it says right here the proposed shell crack shell cracker would convert 80 to eighty thousand eighty five thousand barrels per day and that's just one plant that's just yeah, it's just one yeah it's just one plant all right those are those are our our standard uh, stories for the week i threw in here uh, just because it was too funny uh not an onion but f something from thrill list that even mark laughed at which is uh you know i'm always looking to, to be able to do that what people actually what people in houston say and what they actually mean <laughs> so what was one that jumped out to you mark so i th this actually uh, you know james comes up some goofy stuff on here but this is actually this is actually really funny so um I like this one. Sorry, traffic. Be there soon. Translation. I didn't even leave the house yet, but I'm banking on the fact that there will be insane traffic on 610. <laughs> there definitely is. And then the, the one right after that also also hits home. Uh, and it says, so what do you do? Translation. What sector of oil and gas are you in? Because I'm about to get laid off and could really use a good contact right now. Uh, and so we're having a lot of people reach out to us. Unfortunately, we just can't help everyone that's reaching out to us. And I've actually had to put together a form letter that just basically says, sorry, I'm not an employment agency. Yeah. And so what I've been doing for people that are looking is referring them to the podcast, our Oil and Gas Careers podcast. And a lot of people are really appreciative of listening to that because then they, it makes them think of things they would not have thought of. And like James says, James and I just don't have the bandwidth to help everybody out there that's looking for a job. Um, but we do what we can when we can. Well, and hopefully between this show and the career show, people are able to figure it out for themselves because be, I don't know if anybody listening hasn't listened to the career show. Mark is up to, so we are up to episode 19 now, and every every week Mark gives a different career tip of the week. And if you just put all 19 of those together that he's said so far, you're well on your way to getting a new job. Yeah, plus we list the, 
the jobs that out there that are in the oil and gas industry that people may not be aware of. Yeah. So go check that out. And then if you want to see other, other crazy things that people in Houston say, um, check out this thrill list article, everything we talk about, all of the, all of the links is in all of the events we're about to get into and everything are at triberocket.com forward slash TW 55, because this is episode 55. And right now we have to talk about our winner who comes from a, a small startup that, you know, I think they might get places in life, Mark. Yeah, it's uh, Jeremy Warren with Baker Hughes. Not really a small startup. <laughs> uh, he's their upstream chemical rep. Congratulations, Jeremy. You'll love this bag. I'm I'm really excited so for Baker Hughes, what, just because, the, yeah, they've been around forever. Actually, just a couple of days ago, I saw, I, I want to say the picture was from 1910 or something like that, showing a, some early, early plant of, what is still Baker Hughes in Houston somewhere. And if anyone is not familiar uh, internationally, Baker Hughes is one of the world's largest oil field services companies. It operates in over 90 countries, providing the oil and gas industry with products and services for oil drilling, formation, evaluation, completion, production, and reservoir consulting. So we can get pretty, pretty Texas centric talking about oil and gas. And so if you haven't heard of Baker Hughes, take a look because there's a reason they've been around that long and let's go ahead and thank our sponsor red wing and i have to say this because this show we do it for free but we can't do it for free without red wing so thank you very much to red wing for your support and why don't we touch on the fr clothing again mark because i mentioned it last week but this head-to-toe, all-in-one solution that makes things easier for people trying to source things because we're all about efficiencies on this show. Yeah, so everybody knows Red Wing has great boots, but what you may not know is that Red Wing has a whole line of flame-resistant and protect PPE clothing, um, and they can source it all for you. So if, if you're people or if you are uh, required to wear uh, protective equipment in the oil patch, uh, look at Red Wing. They have some really high-quality stuff out there, and they're a great company to work with. Great, great company to work with. Very flexible, always available. Shout out to Chris over there for always uh, hooking us up with uh, with the winners because we, we record pretty darn early in the morning on Thursdays. If you want your own offshore bag, there's no purchase necessary. See official site for details. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. It's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. And again, thank you. Thank them very much for their continued support of the show. And thank you very much for submitting your information and supporting us in this venture. All right, Mark, let's talk about events because we've got a couple coming up. Uh, one of your insider events, and if you're, if you're not on Mark's list, hurry up and do that, tribrocket.com forward slash events. We'll take you right there because we only touch on a couple of them. There's, I think, five or six more this week that are happening. Future of oil prices and impacts. Talk about this. Yeah, so this is the American Turkish Business Council and also the Texas Turkish American Chamber of Commerce, which, uh, by the way, if you if you are uh, a member of American Turkish Business Council, I have uh, been published in their business magazine several times talking about the U.S. oil and gas industry. Great group of people. Now, they're, they're doing this uh, luncheon, and they have actually Mr. Ron Higgins, and most people know who he is. He's the vice president of Gulf, Gulf Publishing Company. And what they could do is they could talk about the future 
of oil prices and how this will impact the economy of Texas. So it's um, it's it's a small fee to go. This is some great insider baseball information, and you actually get to meet a lot of uh, Turkish oil and gas people that are doing business here in Houston. Great group of people. Shout out to Oran out there. Um, he he runs that group. Um, go to this. I'm I'm gonna be there. It's um it's it's a chance to learn with your peers. And that's Thursday, March 24th at the Turquoise Center on West Belfort Avenue here in Houston, Texas. And then we have one that's not in Houston. It's in Dallas. And it's the 2016 International Petrochemical Conference. Need I say more? <laughs> yeah, no, not really. Um, if you're in upstream or service or midstream and you don't know anything about downstream, you don't know anything about petrochemicals, but you hear us talking about it, go to this conference, go learn that part of the business. If you're a sales guy and your pipeline is dried up because you've been used to selling upstream, go, go here. Um, I'm unfortunately not going to be able to make it, but it's a great learning event. Um, and, and you get to actually meet the people that are in the petrochemical business, which is booming right now. And that's, that's something that I can't stress enough because Mark was the one that finally said, Hey, James, we got to break you out of that upstream crib that you live in <laughs> because this is a much bigger industry than you ever knew. And I'd been in the industry for three and a half years at that point. And if you don't know the whole industry, you're really limiting yourself, not only in job opportunities, but just your understanding and your ability to do whatever you're doing day to day. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that I'm, um, it's a, you know, one of the keys to our success as a company is when something happens in the oil patch, like this low crude price, we just focus our clients on downstream, which have tons of money. You know, having that flexibility, either personally or from a company point of view, is is just vital if you really want to capitalize on this industry. All right, great stuff. And another place to capitalize on this industry is the Global Oil and Gas Network LinkedIn group. Tell them about it, Mark. Yeah, it's, so it's um, our our LinkedIn group is growing like crazy. It's a bunch of your peers, and the nice thing is, I love how helpful everybody is in this group. So I'm, I've watched salespeople trade business contacts. I've seen people um, help each other, um, you know, with jobs. James and I have helped people in the group. Um, so it's a very useful group. And if you listen to the show, this is almost like the companion to the show, um, and it's gonna be the companion to all of our future uh, podcasts that you don't know about yet, but that are coming out. So if you listen to the show. Go join your, our LinkedIn group. You'll be so glad you did. Tribrocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. We'll take you straight there. Just click join group and we will approve you um, as soon as humanly possible. And then we have to round things out with reviews because we didn't get any last week, Mark. Whoa. Hey. <laughs> we didn't get any. Hey, I asked y'all. I asked each one of y'all. Don't turn your head. I asked you to, as a personal favor to <laughs> review. So um, I'll let you slide, right, because everybody's busy. Can you do me a favor this week, though? Can you take the minute and a half, go give us a review, do me a personal favor? What this does is it allows us to rise to the top in the search engine rankings and in iTunes, which allows us to continue to do this show and help people like you. So please, do me a personal favor, go give us a review. It's at tribrocket.com forward slash TW reviews. Take you straight in the iTunes store where you can leave that review. If you don't have an Apple account, you have to set one up. It also takes literally no time, not literally, but you know, kind of. I said, I said, I said literally. I hate, I hate when people do that. If they're listening in iTunes, they do have an Apple account. That's true, but a lot of people listen on the show or on the on the website too. So, got to throw that in there. And if you've made it this far in the show, please share it with your family and your friends and your coworkers. Send an all company email. Do whatever you got to do. 
get the word out. It's at tribrocket.com forward slash share LI. We'll share it straight on LinkedIn forward slash share FB. We'll share it straight on Facebook and forward slash share TW. We'll share it straight on Twitter. With that said, Mark, are you ready to go? Yeah. Remember, folks. Oops. <laughs> you did it again. Ask me again. <laughs> All right, Mark, are you ready to get out of here? Yeah. Do great work. Pay it forward. And we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Everything it takes to build large, um, 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 what's the freaking word I'm looking for?